Rebecca, they um, want to not only see what the spiritual disciplines are, and of course, this is all them and the Lord. I had nothing to do with this, but uh, the, the spiritual disciplines of, you know, silence and solitude and self-examination and what it means to, you know, be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And it's the perfect segue to what we've been talking about in the book of Jeremiah. Two weeks ago, we ended in Jeremiah chapter 33. We read the first 16 uh, verses there, and I, I want to read it to you as well uh, tonight. And just, just uh, we're just going to read the first 16 verses without pause uh, because they, they have a context, just like the whole book of Jeremiah, just like all the books in the Bible themselves. Uh, but just listen uh, to Jeremiah 33. It says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city." Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return. And I will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate without man and without beast in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise to the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in this place which is desolate, without man, without beast, and in all the cities there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowlands, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah and the flock shall again pass under the hand of him who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing that I promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she shall be called. Yahweh, said Ignu. So, Father... That tonight, Lord, I ask, as we just read, that our own hearts would have that sacrifice of praise. And whatever our lives may look like, whether it's like Jerusalem at this time, which is completely 
destroyed, surrounded by a Babylonian army, desolate. Whatever the case of our own hearts, our own lives, or our own circumstances, whatever may be happening in our lives, Lord, help us to always remember that you are the Lord, our righteousness. And it only comes from you. And Lord, I, I'm so grateful for the moving of your Holy Spirit. As we sang tonight, as we sat in silence before you, allowing you to speak rather than us speaking, because you have so much better things to say than us. Help us to carry that over to the study tonight. Help us to listen to your word. Help us to desire for you to speak through us. Maybe different than what was planned or, or different than what was written down, but that your Holy Spirit would reign supreme tonight. Lord, I thank you for these, my friends, my family that are here gathered, those that are online. We lift up to you our pastors, Lord. Lord, we lift up to you, Pastor Mike Ostheimer and Pastor Mike Cosper and Pastor Mike Butler and Pastor Mike Atkinson and Pastor Jason. Lord, we ask that you would just bless their lives tonight, Lord. Give them wisdom in the leadership of our church. Be with our elders, Larry and Ron. Lord, thank you so much for the clear vision that you, you are giving to them. Um, for the future of our church, Lord, and, and for those that are here, I ask that you would bless them tonight. Help them to really feel your presence. Help them to know that you are there with them tonight. In the midst of our problems, in the midst of our heartaches, in the midst of our own um, many, many trials and problems in our lives, we ask that you would help us to lay those things at your feet. That tonight we would find solace in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're in the book of Jeremiah. We've been going through the book of Jeremiah. If you've never read the book of Jeremiah uh, before, it is one of uh, the most amazing books in the Bible. And you're going to hear me say that every single book that we go through. We are in a uh, continuous study of the whole Bible. Started some 10 years ago. I had the privilege of picking it up in, in the book of Psalms. We went through Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastics, Solomon, Isaiah, and now in Jeremiah. And as we've been going through uh, the book of Jeremiah, we're in the midst of a siege. Or we're in the midst of literally the worst time in the history of Jerusalem. The worst time in the history of the nation of Israel. And where is Jeremiah at this time? It says right there in the first verse, he's in a jail cell. And God is telling him, I'm going to bless this city. I'm going to bring healing and health and prosperity to this city. And the description that you see here are literally, what are they doing with these heaps of stones? The towers that were torn down, they're, they're using them as barricades against the Babylonian army, the greatest army on the face of the earth at this time, that's surrounding uh, Jerusalem. In fact, as we see here, three different times, we see the description of desolation. Not, not only of the streets themselves, not only of people, but even of any sort of living being, animals beasts of the earth. Everything is hiding from the Babylonian army and Jeremiah in the jail cell. By, by the way, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in jail, but how much, you know, solitude do you have in jail? And of course, in Jeremiah's time, there was no such thing as um, human rights. I'm sure he had lots of solitude and lots of silence there in the jail cell. Listening for the word of God, it says there in verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made it, the God who formed it, to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. In a jail cell, God is speaking to Jeremiah, one of the most comforting words that any of us could ever hear. Now, I don't know what your life is like. I have no idea. But I do know that you are here tonight. That means you're not in jail. 
right? Thank God. Oh, unless, unless you were forced to come here. I, I don't know if someone made you come here. It may feel like that, but hopefully, you know, you'll walk away different than when you came in. But, but you understand what God is telling Jeremiah. Despite the circumstances that you are in, I have a personal relationship with you. You can call me by name. Isn't that a wonderful thing? To know that you can call upon the name of the Lord. And we're going to see that at the end of this section here too, by the way. This name that is only found in the book of Jeremiah, found twice in the book of Jeremiah, here in 33 and also in 23 as well, the Lord our righteousness. And, and whether you felt uncomfortable during the time of silence tonight or, or whether you, you know, had all these thoughts running through your mind or, or whether you're, you know, thinking about something else now while I'm talking. It doesn't matter. What matters is, are you in the presence of a holy and righteous God right now? And does he want to invade your thoughts? Does he want to be a part of your life tonight? Oh, yes, he does. Look at the description here in verse 4. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the house of the city and the house of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. What are they doing with all those wealthy houses? Well, what are they doing with all the nice uh, houses that have been built up for the upper echelon of the Israelite society? What have they done with those houses? They mean nothing now. Property value has tanked. And what are they doing with any of the building materials? They're trying to reinforce the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Babylonian army is on the outside wanting to break through. And so, because despite the fact that the wealthy people that are living in the city have these nice houses, they mean nothing if not to fortify uh, the walls. In fact, so much so that in verse 5 it says, they come to fight with the Chaldeans. This is another name for the Babylonians. But only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men, whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for the whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. Uh, what is God saying? Whose side is God on, by the way? Babylonians. It's God's wrath that's bringing the Babylonian army on purpose because the people of Israel have not repented of their sin. And so as Jeremiah has said twice in the previous chapters, for 70 years you're going to be taken away into bondage in a foreign country where people will be speaking a different language to you. And this has already happened twice, by the way. The first time, the Babylonians, they came in. And if you've been here before, you've heard me say this. They took away, you know, the, the handsome people, the smart people, the, the ones that could learn in the Babylonian society. The people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. They were taken away first in the first exile. And then the second exile, when the Babylonians came again asking for tribute, the people with skill, the blue-collar workers, the people like Ezekiel, which we'll see when we get to the book of Ezekiel. And they get taken away to the river Kibar there in the land of Babylon. And all that's left, all that's left in the city are the riffraff, the poor people. And by default, if the handsome people are gone, the ugly people. Uh, all those people that Jeremiah is having to minister that are hard-hearted and stiff-necked. That don't want to listen to Jeremiah. Despite the fact that he's been coming to them for literally two decades. 
But this is what God wants to do. Despite the fact that he's coming against them, this is what he wants to do. Verse 6, behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captive of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at first. God wants to bring the people back. Despite their own stubbornness. And of course we, we hear the story in Ezra and Nehemiah. When God brings those people back after 70 uh, years. Rebuilding the land. Rebuilding all those mounds of stone that were used as fortifications against the Babylonians themselves. Rebuilding the temple. Rebuilding the walls. Of Jerusalem. But this is more important in verse 8. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. By which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities. By which they have sinned. And by which they have transgressed against me. Isn't that one of the most amazing promises? And you are here tonight to hear it. How many of the sins of us does God forgive? Wow. We, we know that as a New Testament thing, right? But even in the Old Testament, God is saying, I want to cleanse all of your iniquities, all of your sins, all of your transgressions, everything that you have done against me. But not only that, and by the way, that's called mercy, God goes another step. He gives them grace in verse 9. Not only does he forgive them, gives them something that they don't deserve. But now he's going to give them something that they don't deserve even more. What is he going to give them? And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth. Who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Not only is God going to forgive their iniquity, but he's going to bless them abundantly. Despite the fact that they don't deserve it. Despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Does God still give you joy and peace? The privilege of knowing that he is there walking with you. Verse 10, it reminds them of the situation. Thus says the Lord again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate without man and without beast. In the cities of Judah and the city streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant, without beast. This is what it looks like now. This may be what your life looks like now. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the voice of those who will say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. Just like we sang tonight. God is good how much of the time? All of the time. In fact, this is quoted from Psalms 136, where every, every single verse ends with this phrase. For his mercy endures forever. Every single one of the ending of every single one of the verses in Psalms 136 repeats this phrase. And how many times do I need to be reminded of that? Because the world won't tell us that. The world is telling us that the, you know, earth, everything is going to hell in a handbasket, right? But do you know who's still on the throne even now in the chaos of our world? Do you know whose mercy endures forever? And by the way, if you really understand that word forever, it's foreign to us. We're, we're finite. But do you understand how long forever is? It doesn't end, right? The mercies of God go on and on and on and on. In fact, Jeremiah is going to write in Lamentations later on 
That his mercies are new every single morning. Great is his faithfulness every single time that sun rises. What do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt? That his loving kindnesses and his mercies are going to be new. Inexhaustible. Unique every single time. Do you know that? Do you personally know that? And by the way, God is telling this to Jeremiah where? In a jail cell. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise to the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return, as at the first says the Lord. Do you understand? Every single time we get to worship God, it's a sacrifice of praise. In the Old Testament, it's always described as a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. Your words, your singing, your lifting of your hands, your heart and silence before him. The privilege of knowing that we are before the very throne room of a holy and righteous God. And our praise is a sacrifice to him. A sweet smelling aroma. Can you imagine that? God smelling your praise. Do you see the picture? And he enjoys it. It's personal. As we learn tonight, verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place which is desolate without man and without beast, in all the cities there shall again be a dwelling of shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowlands, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah. And the flock shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. We probably miss the flavor of this, this not being a part of our culture. Uh, but maybe if you've driven up 58 or gone to Tatchby or certain area, other areas where there's lots of, of growth, right? And why do the shepherds bring their sheep or their goats to those places? What, what do the sheep do to those places? Yeah. And not only is it a, a perfect protection against wildfire, but it also feeds the sheep. But it means something more because... This could only be done when there is peace in the land. Can it be done when there's an army at your doorsteps? No, of course not. Everything has to be brought inside. The sheep can't just go wandering out. What will happen to them? The army's going to slaughter them and eat them, right? And so this epitomizes a time of peace that's going to be happening where the shepherds are going to be out in the fields fully secured, knowing that their flocks will not come to any harm. That those sheep can roam freely under the watchful eyes of the shepherd. But even more so, the people in verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. By the way, this is a reunification of Israel and Judah that has been separated since the death of King Solomon himself. Some 400 years earlier. There had been a civil war and the nation of Israel had been separated into two different kingdoms. Israel in the north that was conquered in 722 BC by the Assyrians and then uh, Israel, or excuse me, Judah in the south, Jerusalem, the capital of the, that uh, nation now about ready to be eradicated in 586 uh, BC. But God's going to bring all the tribes back. Not, not just part of them. He's going to bring back all the tribes. And in those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Do you know who this is, he is talking about in this verse? It's the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Who's going to be the only one that can forgive us of all of our iniquities. Provide a way for all of us to come into the very presence 
of a holy and righteous God. Verse 16, in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. This amazing phrase that's only found in the book of Jeremiah. Here in chapter 33 and chapter 23. Yahweh Sadiq knew the Lord our righteousness. Do you know who the only one is that can give you righteousness? It's not me. It's not you. It's not anyone else. It only comes from one. It's the great exchange. My sins for his righteousness. And his righteousness for my sins. Even though he didn't know a single sin, even though he didn't commit a single sin, he became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. Do you understand that? It's truly beyond anything that we can even begin to comprehend in terms of a gift from someone. That the God of the universe would give me his righteousness for my unworthiness. The redemption of God for me and you. It should truly floor us. And in Jeremiah chapter 23 Verses 5 through 6, we, we read the same phrase, although it's, it's written a little bit differently. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh, Sadiqnu. If you've never, you know, explored the names of God, you know, El Shaddai, Yahweh Sadiqnu, El Rafim, all the, the names that the Bible portrays God as his attributes, if you will. Going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Why does he give us his names? So that we can know him personally. So that we can cry out to him in our times of need as Jeremiah does. And by the way, Jeremiah is having to uh give his sermons or prophesy to uh, this obstinate people. In fact, it starts here in verse 17 where we pick up the story anew. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne and of the house of Israel, nor shall the priest and the Levites lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice uh, continually. By the way, as soon as King Zedekiah dies which we're going to find out in the next chapter here. As soon as King Zedekiah dies, there will not be another king on the throne, not another human king on the throne in Jerusalem. It's all going to be governors. Even in the time of Jesus, it's all going to be governors. When Ezra and Nehemiah come back, it's going to be a governor that sits on the throne. It's not going to be a king until King Jesus sits on the throne. And this is the amazing prophecy that we see. He must come from the line of David. He must be a king, but he also must be, as we see here, a priest as well. Not from the line of Levi, as the book of Hebrews says, but from a greater line, Melchizedek. Going all the way back to Genesis, where Abraham gives a tithe. To um, Melchizedek there. And you can read that in the book of Hebrews. Verse 19 it says. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying. Thus says the Lord. If you can break my covenant with the day. And with my covenant with the night. So that there will not be day or night. In their season. Then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant. So that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levites and the priests. And my ministers. This is the promise that I make. 
the sign in the sky that was there from literally the time of creation itself, the rising of the sun and its setting down. That, that cycle that God has never allowed to stop is the promise that God backs that I will give a king to sit on the throne. That I will never break my covenant with the house of Judah or the house of David. Or as we read last time, knowing the very depths of the ocean or counting the stars in the heaven. Or as it says here in verse 22, as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister before me. Going all the way back to the covenant of Abraham. And by the way, God had made multiple covenants with the people of Israel. And every single time, the people of Israel broke them. But God is still being faithful to his side of the promise. His side of the covenant. And you can read this all the way back in the book of, of Genesis as well. Uh, where Abraham literally falls asleep during the middle of the covenant making service. Where he's literally there on the side of those animals that have been split in half as God himself makes the covenant, walks through, saying, I will not break this covenant. And if I do, then this is what will happen to me. Just as these animals that have been split in two. And knowing that Abraham can never keep the covenant, what is he doing? He's there asleep on the side of the hill there. Or even the Davidic covenant, or the Noahic covenant, or the Adamic covenant. All these covenants that God had made with the people had always been one-sided. It was always God who made the covenant with the people. And just like the Mosaic covenant, the people broke it multiple times. In fact, Moses did what with those Ten Commandments? Broke all ten of them at once, right? And was God faithful to his side of the bargain every single time? And is God faithful to his bargain to you, his covenant with you? Despite the fact that we sin, is God still faithful to us? Thank God for that. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, going all the way back to creation itself, God makes a covenant. Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it says, Then the Lord said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. When did God set in motion the covenant? On the very first day, the sign was in the sky every single day. Isn't that amazing? Just a couple of weeks ago, I saw an amazing rainbow. It was a double rainbow. It was part, you know, a full, full rainbow and then a, a partial you know, half rainbow that was right underneath it. And do you know what that covenant is? Do you know what that covenant means? Yeah, that God will never flood the earth again. Every single time you see that rainbow, you know that God will never destroy the earth again with a flood. Going all the way back to Noah. The, the real reason for the rainbow, by the way. But also, even before the rainbow was made, the sun and the moon, the day and the night cycle. And every single time that sun rises, what do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt? That God's going to keep his covenant. This is the proof. This is what we see. And God's telling Jeremiah this in a jail cell. By the way, can he see the sun and the moon coming up? No. They didn't give him windows. He was in the inner courts. He, he was, as we're going to find out later, he's going to be down in a pit. Sinking in mud. 
where literally his, you know, uh, bottom half of his body is in deep mire. Gunk. Not able to see the moon or the sun. But Jeremiah knows that God will still keep his promises. Just like he does with us. Verse 23, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken? Saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. God's covenant is always one-sided in our favor. Aren't you glad that there's, you know, the God of the universe that looks out for us when everybody else is trying to take advantage of you? Where we always have to read the fine print. Why? Whether we might be cheated. Or at least we think we'll be cheated. But do you understand that God's covenant with us is always for our benefit? And is always paid by God. Through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Chapter 34, we, we now get a, a, a flavor or a personal story uh, from King Zedekiah, the, the last of the kings now sitting on the throne in Judah. And you remember what's going to happen to him. I'll, I'll read the story in a little bit if you haven't been here before. Uh, but the tragedy of King Zedekiah is that that's the last of the kings sitting on the throne of David himself in the capital city of Jerusalem, sitting in the palace that King Solomon built. He's ignoring the words of God. Look at what it says. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he shall burn it with fire. Isn't that a great message to take to a king? Your entire kingdom is going to be burned with fire. Oh, what a legacy that will leave, right? And Zedekiah hates this, by the way. It's Zedekiah that has put, you know, Jeremiah into the um, uh, jail in the first place. Later on, he's going to make it even a... A more secure environment for uh, Jeremiah. It says here in verse 3, And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hands. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. And if you remember the story, this is the last thing he's going to see. After his two sons are killed before him and his eyes are plucked from his head. And he's kept in captivity in Babylon as a trophy for the rest of his life. You see the downfall of the last king of Jerusalem. But that doesn't end the story. Verse 4, we hear that yet the word of the Lord, O king, or Zedekiah, king of Judah, thus says the Lord, consuming your, you shall not die by the sword. In fact, he's going to try to escape later on with his uh, entourage. You shall die in peace as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they will burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. And in 2 Kings chapter 25, we get the rest of the story. So they took the king and brought him before the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they pronounced judgment on him. 
And they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and they took him to Babylon. And this ends, by the way, the history of the nation of Israel before uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the very last chapter in the Kings, by the way. The same story is told again also in Second Chronicles too. Jeremiah has to bring this message to the king, the very last king of the nation of Judah. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, a king of Judah in Jerusalem. And when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, uh, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. Kind of as an, a last act, if you will. He frees the slaves in Jerusalem. But of course, the rich people, they didn't like this, so they take it back in verse 9, that every man should set free his male and female slave, uh, Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now, when all the princes, the, the rich people, the upper echelon of the Israelite society and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone would set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go but afterward they changed their minds and they made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves so what are they doing they're going back on their word they're saying oh you can go free but then a couple weeks later a couple months later what do they say no you need to come and serve us. And, and, you know, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the rich people. What were they having to do for themselves if they don't have any more slaves? Yeah, they have to do everything themselves. And they're in a siege, by the way, which makes it even worse because there's a famine and a drought going on. And so they're having to walk long distances for food. They actually have to go out and get their own water now. They don't have any people to do it for them. And so what do they do? They say, no, we're, you have to, you know, serve us again. Verses 12 through 16. I, I want to read this to you before we get to kind of the history of what it meant to be a, a servant or a slave in Jewish society. In verse 12, it says, Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. Going all the way back to the book of Exodus, going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Yes, they were allowed to, you know, make people that were their own countrymen repay their debts. But it'll only be for a certain amount of time. They couldn't do it indefinitely. And so the prescribed time was six years. And at the end of that six years, you were debt free. No matter what you owed, you were debt-free, and they had to be let go in the seventh year. The understanding was that you could never keep another fellow countryman in bondage to you without them purposely choosing to. And of course, there was a provision called the bond servant. In verse 15... Or at the end there of verse 14, it says, But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. What did they like about having slaves? It was a permanent source of free labor, right? People would do things for you. And you could lord it over them. You could put them in bondage, if you will. By the way, this, this subject of slavery has been going on for thousands of years. There's nothing new under the sun, right? 
even the Israelites are having to deal with this issue. What does it say there in verse 15? Then you recently turned, did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. You made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. They make this covenant. We promise God to set all of our captives free. Don't make us bondage. Don't put us in slavery. It was a foxhole prayer, if you will. And who breaks the covenant? The people of Jerusalem. Just as many times before. Then you turned around, profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure, brought them back in the subjection to be your male and female uh, slaves. The ordinance goes all the way back to Exodus, by the way. But there's an added part that Jeremiah doesn't add in here. Because there was a provision. There's always a provision. You see, if the person who was in slavery at the end of that six-year required time of paying back their debt wanted to stay at the person's house, they could willingly choose to do it. No longer as a slave, but as a paid servant or as a paid employee. Look at the description here in Exodus chapter 21 verses 1 through 6. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. All their debts paid off. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. And if his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons and daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Do you get the picture where, where the awl, and this was a, you know, metal a spike. Uh, today we, we always, you know, normally it's for leather work or woodwork or something like that, but but literally to have your ear put on the doorpost of the house that you're going to serve at and then an all stamped through it. And every single time you walk through the door of that house, what do you see in the doorpost? Piece of your ear, right? You know, that little dent there with the little indentation with a little piece of your blood. But, but you know how amazing this is? Because again, this is voluntary. That This wasn't something that they had to do. This was voluntary. This is what Paul describes himself in the New Testament. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Wow. Again, it's always a choice for us. To be in service to the God of the universe who has paid off all your debts. Not because of something that we have to do, but because of something we volunteer. And who was pierced, by the way? Not me, not my ear. Who was pierced for your iniquities and your sins? On the doorpost, by the way. Just like in the very last plague of Egypt. The door, the blood on the doorpost. Exactly the same picture. And to, to know that the God of the universe was pierced for you and me. To bear our sins. The breaking of the covenant that I did. Not keeping my end of the covenant. But God always keeping his end. Giving us mercy and grace. And just like the people of Israel at this time. 
What do we do when we make our covenants, when we make our promises? We so easily forget them. When the times get good, we forget. We always do. I always do. But God always remembers. God always remembers his love and his mercy and his grace for us. So next week, we're going to pick up where we left off here in verse 17. By the way, next week is our uh, first Wednesday, our communion Wednesday. So please come. I know you will enjoy that uh, immensely. Uh, please uh, read ahead the next couple of chapters. It will blow your mind, by the way, the next, you know, chapter 35, chapter 36. Uh, it, it will be a privilege as we go uh, through. And so hopefully tonight you will be different than you left or than when you came in. You will be different when you leave than you came in. Ho hopefully tonight you, you came, you know, not having you know, a, a clue about the book of Jeremiah or maybe not knowing what we were going to talk about, but you see that this is just as applicable today as it is when it was written. The privilege of knowing that God wants you to call upon his name. That it is him that keeps the covenant. It is him that forgives us of all of our iniquities, all of our transgressions, all of our sins. And so, Father, tonight as we go our separate ways, as we go for the rest of our week, whatever things we may have to do, help us to focus upon you. To remember that we can sit silently before you. And it is so much more important that we listen to you rather than talking. That the answers to all of the, the deepest questions that we may have come in a relationship with the God of the universe. That wants to give us wisdom in our lives, direction and peace. Lord, we ask that you would help us to sit before you and know that we have access to the very throne room of a holy and righteous God, the Lord, our righteousness, Yahweh, Sadiqno. Knowing that we have fallen short of the glory, knowing that we have sinned, knowing that we break the covenant, but knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can come before you, not because of what we have done, but because of the perfect sacrifice, the piercing of your son, Jesus Christ, who paid for our uh, sins. So if there's anyone in this room that has never made that um, commitment or made that choice to come and know you personally, Lord, I ask that you would convict them tonight. They would come forward and know that there's um, someone that would love to pray with them. Let there be no hindrance, no confusion from Satan, but that your Holy Spirit would move freely amongst our hearts tonight, Lord. And Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends, those that are here, those that are watching online, those that may be watching later on in the week. Yes, you bless them mightily tonight. Help us to see you clearly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you.